Hello and welcome to the Resilience Research Group's podcast series. Each month we will be producing a separate seminar based on a panel of researchers, organisations and all the public to discuss one topic related to resilience. In this podcast we're going to be discussing resilience in relation to adulthood and older age. So to begin with, could I please ask our panel to introduce themselves to our audience? So I'm Kate Bennett, I'm Professor of Psychology at the University of Liverpool. Um, I'm an expert in uh, later life and uh, resilience and particularly ecological resilience. Uh, my name is Nori, uh, Dr. Noriko Keibo. I'm a research, uh, senior research fellow at the Epidemiology and the Public Health UCL. And the, uh, I'm the uh, more, likely the, more likely the social life course epidemiologist. Hi, I'm Sherry Hamby. I'm the research professor of psychology at the University of the South, and I'm also director of the Life Paths Research Center. I'm based in uh, Tennessee in the United States, and my background is in trauma and resilience. Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Kristen Krauss. I'm an instructor in the Urban Global Public Health Department at the Rutgers School of Public Health in Newark, New Jersey, and also the deputy director of the Center for Health, Identity, Behavior, and Prevention Studies. Uh, my background is in HIV and aging with a focus on uh, resilience and also uh, broader LGBTQ um, communities as well. Uh, hello, my name is Dr. Jennifer McGowan. I'm a lecturer at UCL and my background is in health and resilience. Fantastic, thank you everyone. It's great to hear from you all and to have you here today. So thank you for being here. So I'd like to start this podcast off uh, with a very wide question, if I may, which is how would you define resilience in adulthood? I, uh, I, I would define resilience in adulthood as a process that involves the, the full social ecology. So I think it is really important to move away from definitions that you hear in the, among the general public and the media a lot, and, and still even some researchers of thinking about it as a personality trait. Uh, you know, that's not a good description of how we deal with adversity. And so I think of it as something that, yes, does involve personal individual characteristics, but also assets and resources that your family, your peers, your community, and your and even your broader uh, societal or cultural setting involve, and the way that you access those assets and resources to achieve thriving or well-being despite a uh, burden of adversity. I think I said this in a, a previous podcast as well, but I think of it as this muscle that we're working to strengthen over time. And with each, you know, adverse event, whether it's a, a localized individual, like death in the family or something like that, or this pandemic that we are still living through a year and a half later, um, it's this this reaction and this this um, ability to keep to keep strengthening that ability to bounce back. So I would agree with uh, a lot of what Sherry Sherry has said. Um, I also like to think of it as an outcome, but an outcome which um, is not, if you like, a final, a final event. So you might be resilient, but you might lose your resilience if another challenge comes along. 
and I think it's really important to think about it as something for which we are all responsible which is why I talk about ecological resilience in that we have responsibilities as in as individuals as communities as society and really important to not have what I would describe as a sort of neoliberal approach to resilience which would suggest that if you are not resilient it is your fault and you're responsible for making yourself resilient instead of which I think that we as a society are responsible in promoting um, resilience and society is also responsible for hindering resilience and so we need to look at it at the individual the community and the societal level in order to really understand what's going on and to contribute to people across the board becoming facilitating people to become more resilient but that it isn't an individual it isn't an individual responsibility um I think the capable capability point of view, there's something that you have the resource in a, in a cell uh, to the uh, combat against the adversity that is uh, working definition of the uh, our research group back then, yeah. Fantastic, thank you. And in previous podcasts, we've talked a lot about resilience in relation to um, to young age groups, so children and adolescents, for example. And as I understand it, the resilience literature um, began with children and still mainly focused on that age group. How might you consider our resilience research to be different when it focuses on adulthood instead? I think the uh, it will change the body because that's the uh, sort of the life experience. So the, the once you had it and you just the, uh, won't change at all. That I don't I don't think so. That certainly the growth from the uh, through the social networks and the social support. Um, yeah, and the, uh, I think that's the some the famous study about Emil Banner. And uh, they are talking about Kauai's children. And I think they also change their uh, uh, life transition that the, if you make the life transition suspect, sus successfully, like the employment and through the marriage, that added to the people's resilience in that way. So then I'm sure, Anata, I'm sure it is very likely to the, uh, uh, relate to the transition that they are facing. Yeah. One thing to recognise is that as we get older, we face more challenges. There's more vet. There's more. There's more variation. There's more. More. More um, variations in experience, and those challenges, for example, in in later life, which is my with my speciality, you might have people being bereaved. They they're stopping work. They um, maybe become carers. They may be members of a, of a sandwich generation. And all of these challenges um, accumulate. And it's a much more complex time than uh, people think. My teenage, teenagers might say that their lives are very complicated, but they're not as complicated in, in respect to those challenges as mine as a as a woman in her 50s or of my parents uh, as in, in their 80s. And so 
there are more things going on there are more things that are there to trip us up but on the other hand there's also more experience on which we can draw in order to overcome those challenges uh, yeah i would agree with a lot of what kate said i think especially in terms of thinking about uh, adversity and and strengths both across the lifespan and you know, one of the most important ideas of the last 20 or so years of research has been this idea of the cumulative burden of trauma, your, your total trauma dosage, uh, you know, whether that's, you know, in the adverse childhood experiences literature or the poly-victimization literature, there's a lot of different places that are kind of converging on that idea. And that does really change the way we think about resilience in adulthood, because it does mean that you are probably going to have you know, it's not that something bad is going to happen and you didn't have any bad things ever before that and that's going to be the only bad thing and then, you know, you measure your after and unfortunately a lot of the resilience literature still really only focuses on single events like that, but but how do you manage this sort of, you know, ongoing burden where things are going to come up and you know, like bereavement, the example Kate offered, I mean, you don't know when that's going to happen a lot of the time. And so, uh, you know, just that capacity to prepare. I use this concept of resilience portfolios in our work and that they capture all of the different assets and resources. So they include interpersonal ones, which is where the social ecology we were talking about is. And also uh, regulatory and meaning-making strengths. And one thing that we have found in our work, uh, because I've worked with, I also do research on adolescents and young adults. And so I've worked with people from ages about 10 up into their 70s and 80s. And what we found is that the resilience portfolio of your typical you know, 50 or 60 or 70 year old looks different than the resilience portfolio of a 10 or 20 year old. Um, you know, and some things they're better, right? Like, like older adults are a lot better at emotion regulation and, you know, those sorts of coping strengths where adolescents really pretty well stink at that for the most part. And, uh, uh, and you know, and you can see that improving really in our data quite nicely till around mid twenties when their brain is, their frontal lobe is finally fully developed. And then, uh, you know, they, they improve more slowly, but they still some improvement up until, you know, forties, fifties, um, you know, other types of things like people tend to get more religious and rely on spirituality or faith as they get older. Uh, but in other areas, uh, older people are often struggling a little bit. And probably the main one is in social support, where their social networks tend to be smaller than they were in their teens or 20s or 30s. And so they don't have uh, that resource to, to draw on. Um, so that is how I, I think about, uh, you know, how resilience changes over the lifespan. Thank you. And I, I'd like to uh, build on that a bit more, actually, because that's quite a, a large concept in the field of, of adulthood and resilience, is the idea that often the, the definition of resilience relies on the premise that the individual has experienced stressful life events before and can utilize those life experiences to effectively monitor their behaviors. But you've also mentioned, of course, that there is an accumulation of stresses as people get older. So they may, in fact, be, be more stressed that is taxing their resilience resources. 
So in general, do you feel that people get, uh, if it's possible to define it this way, uh, more or less resilient with age? So in the quantitative studies that I have been involved in, generally speaking, uh, the evidence suggests that the older you are, the more resilient you are in those kinds of uh, studies of uh, bereavement that I've been involved in. And we're not here necessarily talking about younger younger people. We're talking about even within older people, the older the older you are, the more likely you are to be uh, to be resilient. I think that's also true in some of the um, the work that's gone on during COVID with in relationship to mental health challenges, which you would expect older people to be more vulnerable to because of this, the, this, the situations that they find themselves with higher, higher mortality and morbidity, especially during the first, the first wave. But what we find is that older people seem to be able to resist those pressures more effectively than than younger than younger people and i think that's because they've had these these variety of experiences and they've already experienced challenge i don't think you could get to 65 or to 75 without having experienced some challenge in your life or you're very lucky if that is the case Uh, yeah, we also find that some, I mean, it depends. See, I think it actually is extremely important to think about resilience as a process. And so the process involves your trauma dosage, your strengths portfolios, and then your outcome or your current your current level of functioning. I mean, you know, when we talk about outcomes, sometimes we make it sound like it's going to be that way forever. But uh uh, you know, and so I, I wouldn't describe them as being more or less re resilient, but I think that you do see that older adults often have uh, broader resilience portfolios, that they have, you know, a range of assets. I mean, sometimes these can be tangible assets too, like they just have the financial resources to throw money at problems and a lot of problems can get better if you can throw money at them. And uh, and then also some kinds of, of indicators of their functioning are better. So they do tend to have higher reports of like subjective well-being and also trauma symptoms tend to decline as we age. Uh, but there are other outcomes, especially if things, for example, like health-related quality of life that tend to get worse as we age. So you know, I, I think we really need to stop just talking in these sort of global terms and get more specific about like what's happening under the under the hood. And in terms of, uh, you know, another element about that is that you know, like you do often hear people talk about this kind of stealing effect or this inoculation effect and uh, you know, that, that it's something about the trauma themselves that makes you stronger. But in fact, the emerging research on trauma dosage, even though that has been a popular concept in resilience for a number of years, really calls that into question. Because if you look at 
any of the ACEs research or any of the poly victimization or complex trauma research. I mean, there are hundreds of studies using a lot of different methodological approaches and they all pretty much converge on the same thing that like one trauma is worse than zero and two traumas are worse than one and three traumas are worse than two. But if it were true that we were somehow getting steeled or toughened up by a trauma, then you know, you have to really think through like what that would look like statistically. And what that would look like statistically is that it would actually be better to be in the sort of low level of trauma range, because then you're saying that those people have gotten toughened up compared to the ones that have been more sheltered or protected. And so one trauma would actually be better than no traumas, and maybe two traumas would still be better than one trauma, and maybe it would only be when you get up to like six or seven traumas that you start getting, you know, back up into the symptomatic range, and literally nobody has ever found that. I mean, it is really, uh, you know, that whole, you know, and so, uh, you know, there are lots of ways to increase your strengths portfolios, and it, it is true that, that, uh, it's useful psychologically to think about silver linings and post-traumatic growth. And, you know, that's what I think about. I mean, even in terms of the pandemic, you know, I'll think about the, uh, you know, my kids were, are, you know, were more, had spent more time at home and I got to spend more time with my kids. And so, you know, I can point to those kinds of silver linings. And psychologically, it's certainly good to do that. There's no question that it's better for people to to have that sort of post-traumatic growth orientation, but it still would be better if the pandemic had never happened. I mean, there are other ways that I can like spend time on my, you know, with, with my kids. Um, well, it's actually, you know, not true that quantifying, I don't, I'm just mystified that somebody would, uh, Kate has put in the chat that quantifying traumas or challenges is problematic. That's what the entire research literature is based on. And it does turn out to be that surprisingly, you know, for many years, we focused on trying to capture things in terms of severity or frequency. And it has actually turned out that all of those different approaches are not nearly as powerful as just counting up the total number of exposures. And, uh, you know, that this really has been a, a revolutionary finding in violence research that is now finally starting to impact resilience research too, where people are trying to come up with similar concepts like positive childhood experiences or poly strengths. And, uh, you know, we it really need to shift off of some of our old ways of thinking because the data just doesn't support them any longer. Maybe, maybe I'm maybe I'm missing the point. Um, so, so forgive me if if I am. It seems to me that quantity is simply not going to be it is is not going to be a determining factor in um, obvious in whether people have are resilient or not. I think we need to make a distinction anyway between sort of working trauma and working resilience because I think that they are that they are different things but from you know from the work that I have done it is the the way in which those challenges are perceived by individuals and their their the quality of their impact that is important and you can't 
so if the idea is that it's simply you know well the the the, the numerical evidence is the more you have the worse it's going to be that's you know maybe that's fair enough but i would say that there are people for whom when i've worked with people who are bereaved for whom it's not a huge challenge and then for others for whom it has been and you can look at what is the more what is the more challenging of those things and it's the quality of those experiences that is really important to whether somebody uh, is resilient rather than a sim simple kind of count so i'm not sure whether i am simply missing the point or whether i am disagreeing um with sherry <laughs> i don't know um uh. Yes, you know, like I said, that that has been the thinking for basically the whole 20th century. That's what the thinking about those types of things were. Uh, but let me give you another example. So uh, because this has been studied in a whole lot of different fields and they all really converge on the same finding. So after uh, the 9-11 terrorist attacks, I mean, in the United States, there were a number of studies of people who lived in and around lower Manhattan. And in terms of resilience, there are several like really surprising things that come out of those kinds of research. It was not my work, uh, the work of people like Galea and, uh, you know, and other researchers. Uh, so one of the things is, is that, yeah, people were surprisingly resilient. I mean, if you go and look in the the diagnostic manual, the DSM-5, and the first thing says that you have to have this, you know, like life-threatening experience and, you know, that has certain characteristics. And it would be hard to imagine something that would fit the PTSD criteria better than something like being, you know, in the neighborhood of the Twin Towers on 9-11, right? I mean, that is just a, a truly, you know, horrifying and traumatic experience. But even in, in the immediate weeks following the 9-11 uh, attacks, the PTSD rate in lower Manhattan was about 20%. So that's horribly high in terms of a public health problem, but it also signals that 80% of those people were you know, fairly resilient in terms of their overall level of functioning, even you know, right away in the days and weeks afterwards. Within six months later, those same researchers went back and reassessed everybody, and the PTSD rate of Manhattanites was about 1% just six months later. So, I mean, that is why resilience is such an important construct to understand because even and a lot of times in the media, you know, we present it as like this something's going to happen to you and it's going to, you know, ruin your life. But in fact, really bad things happen to lots of people. Many people have very high trauma burdens and they, you know, still manage to thrive and achieve well-being despite those high burdens of trauma. But to go back to this point of like, what is the feature of it? There's been a lot of research too. And so for example, in 9-11, your prior trauma burden. So whether that was, you know, the first really bad thing or the fifth or the 10th really bad thing, that was the main driving force behind who gets PTSD and who doesn't. And it was more important than whether you had a, a friend who was killed in the attack. It was more important than whether you lost your job because of the attack. So there were lots of these other factors that, you know, affected the quality 
quality of the experience in the way that, you know, that Kate was talking about it, but that, but those were not as strong a predictor as prior trauma burden. And if you look at something like veterans, I mean, that would be another example is that people will come back from the exact same tour of duty, uh, you know, in Afghanistan or wherever, and most of them will not get PTSD. And people now realize that probably the main driver of whether they do or not is their prior trauma burden. So I realize this is a revolutionary way of thinking about trauma and adversity, but it is a really powerful one that has been demonstrated over and over again in a lot of different sub-disciplines. And, you know, one of the big challenges of work in psychology and other social sciences is that we, you know, we get into our silos and there's so many incentives in the system for, you know, just focusing on terrorist survivors or veterans or adolescents or whatever, but, you know, but, but there's a lot of there's a lot of people who are essentially finding the same pattern and it is holding up across a lot of different populations and a lot of different types of trauma. And so I really think it's important that we, I mean, that's not how I was trained. I started off as a domestic violence researcher and then I first kind of expanded into like other forms of family violence. And, you know, if you had asked me when I was in graduate school, if, if bullying or, or even bereavement was as bad as like domestic violence, I would have been like, no, you know, like this, I'm studying the one that like, needs to be studied. But, uh, uh, but that just has simply turned out not to be true. And so I, I do think that we need to, uh, you know, incorporate trauma dosage into our work going forward. And I suspect that if, uh, you know, if, if those studies on bereavement had incorporated trauma dosage, as well as these other characteristics that you would all also find that it is an extremely powerful predictor. And then a lot of the studies that don't find it are simply because they're not asking those questions about prior trauma exposure and that they're only focusing on the presenting problem or the reason that someone got referred into a, a service or a study. And, um, and unfortunately, that turns out to be a really problematic way to think about people. So my position would be that trauma is a particular and I would suggest narrow it, it, within the context that I'm working in area and the areas that I'm interested in resilience in later life in particular are the ordinary everyday uh, challenges so challenges not traumas that people face so they don't have to be they don't have to be negative necessarily and they're the kinds of events that people face bereavement is one of them most of my bereaved participants would never describe their their um experiences as traumatic in 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 the small scale yes they're they're distressing the same with the same with dementia care the same with something like retirement or relocation these are ordinary everyday challenges that that i'm interested in, and not and not those big grand events and i think that that's that's important i think i suspect that what sherry uh, sherry and i are coming at is from a different perspective so you know, from say domestic violence in terms of sherry's work and me from ordinary normal 
uh, events of aging which are important and so I think that's where our our differences lie. Thank you and I would like to uh, deliberately pick on Kristen now because I know that Kristen has a, a completely separate view of adulthood and older age in terms of, of illness which arguably when it comes to chronic illness could be halfway between you and Sherry so I, I'd like her opinion on how over adulthood uh, resilience might change your response to stresses. I don't know if it's, it, you know, the example I was going to provide a bit ago comes from some work that we did with folks living with HIV, older, older gay men, but in the context of HIV, older is actually considered age 50, which I know it's not typically what we would, what the, the age mark we would notate, but in the history of, of the HIV epidemic, you know, historically, that's just kind of what it's been. And so some of the work that I've, I've done with my team has really kind of looked at those who have been living with HIV prior to 1995, almost noted as this pre-antiretroviral period, compares to those who were diagnosed after. And, you know, those who were diagnosed earlier on in the epidemic, even though there was a lot more uncertainty in terms of access to treatment, obviously, um, and what the, the future outlook looked like at that point in time, you know, there hasn't been significant differences across the different groups, but those who were, you have been living with HIV longer, at least from our data, have been slightly more resilient, not substantially, but when you look at the numbers side by side, they're slightly more. And I think it speaks to this, you know, almost um, when we start thinking about social support and kind of collective community building, there was a lot more of that happening in the 1980s and 90s within this community in the days of ACT UP, in the, the, the politicization around HIV, especially in the US and, and I know even so in the UK, um, that kind of provided this, um, this support that's unlike other chronic illnesses I think we've seen, not totally different, but slightly different in terms of the communities that HIV was disproportionately impacting were already communities that were were quite invisible um, in larger larger population settings, and so um, you know it's an interesting thing to think about both with just aging in general, but also when you compare time points of you know longer duration of illness, contextualizing that historically as well. Thank you, and. Um... I'd like to build on that idea of social support because Sherry brought that up earlier as well. And uh, in my own research, which I will admit has also touched on HIV and aging as well, we found that um, older adults did have higher resilience, but this was quite strongly associated with them having that social support and being able to utilize that social support as well. But earlier, Sherry mentioned, uh, as the research does show, that as you get older, your social group gets smaller. So I wondered how you felt that um, adults, and particularly older adults, managed to maintain their resilience despite that smaller social group. So, um, I mean, one of the things that, that we know from social support literature is that it's not really the amount of social support. What's important is the discrepancy between the amount of social support you uh, would like to receive and the amount of support that you receive. And I think that that's the, the really important thing. So it's not about, again, it's not about uh, quantity, it's about quality. 
and it's also about who you're drawing that support from so we have worked with dementia uh, dementia um, carers uh, spousal carers and there what was important was the support from friends so it was family close friends closer and so it was choosing those people who would give you the kind of support you needed so family you might have lots of family wanting to do to, to help you but it wasn't providing the support that you that you needed that you wanted and I think that that's that's important in terms of maintaining it I think that that is a real that is a real challenge and perhaps one of the things is to try and maintain those links particularly with friends as you get older and and, and kind of my husband always talks about it. it's really important to work at your friendships you know we've got to think about them go as we're getting older and i think i think that that's true because they're going to they're going to decrease as we get older they're going to they're going to die off and we need to sort of think about um how we maintain those friendships when the pool of proximate friendships has uh, has shrunk yeah, I was out you Kate stole the the words directly from my brain of quality over quantity and I think you know not even just within the HIV literature but within some of the the work that I've done with broader LGBT communities as well again kind of when you've got groups of people who have been historically marginal marginalized for one reason or another and this idea of chosen family and chosen relationships um and in times it's you know those particular um, relationships tend to be a lot meaningful for folks. Again, not across the board, but when you can kind of pick and choose who who you're going to spend holidays with, who you're going to share big momentous life moments with, whether it's a job promotion or an engagement or what have you. Um, you know, yes, over time we we see that these relationships can diminish, but it, there's also the the unique aspect of of community. Um, membership in a way where you can kind of uh, take those shared lived experiences and there's you know other support groups available for for folks and whether again it's HIV, LGBT, what have you, um, where people are able to kind of tap into those you know historical underpinnings and and kind of come together in that way which I think is is not unique necessarily but um, an exciting part of of when thinking about resilience and, and that. Um, yeah, on uh, on this point, I, I would also agree that that quality is, you know, it's not the same as quantity. And we have also found in terms of our social support measures that it has been better and makes them a more powerful predictor. If you shift off of measures that just say like how many people are in your, you know, friend circles or whatever, like uh, like the uh, multi-dimensional scale of social support, for example, there's a lot that just more or less measure quantity. And, and then if we actually measure how much people have experienced specific supportive behaviors, then that is a better predictor in our analyses. But I also would like to, uh, you know, suggest, I mean, I think that Kristen's example is a, you know, of the HIV survivors is, is a really good one to, 
to sort of illustrate, you know, the range of resilience portfolios. So I think a lot of the things there that she's talking about that have made a difference to HIV positive people are not just a matter of social support, but also, I mean, she's used this word a couple of times herself of, of meaning making. And, and so things like being, you know, like act up and being able to participate in activism, you know, I, I wouldn't normally think of that as, as social support so much as an opportunity for meaning making, uh, you know, much like the opportunities that we all have by, you know, working on these problems and trying to help people be more resilient and reduce the burden of trauma. And so, you know, I think that if there's a lot of political attention to, you know, that during that time period, I, um, you know, back then I actually worked with HIV positive people myself. I participated as a um, uh, as a neuropsychological examinator in some of the very first trials of antiretroviral drugs in the mid-1990s when I was a postdoc. And, uh, you know, and they... They felt like they were part of something. And so that's what we would consider meaning making in the resilience portfolio model is like feeling like you're part of something larger or connect to something larger than yourself. Uh, you know, and that probably is actually more the most important domain in the work that we've done so far is to have that sense of connection to something larger than yourself. And so it's not just to your friend, but to this you know, it could be religion or faith, it could be, you know, commitment to a movement, or if for some people, it's also commitment to a role, uh, you know, like we talked about, you know, being a caregiver to older adults, you know, like things like that. I mean, there's lots of different ways we can derive meaning. And that really probably turns out to be the, the single most important factor that we need. And the challenges of getting older is that sometimes, um, like I just told you, Jennifer, uh, right before we as, uh, we started the recording that I became an empty nester this year. And so being a parent has been a hugely important role to me for, you know, many years now. But now that my kids are in college, it's, you know, it's a developmental challenge that I'm having to sort of renegotiate, like, what does that mean about my own sense of identity? What's that mean for like changes in my relationships with my children who are now adults? And, uh, you know, and so I, those are the kinds of things that can sometimes trip people up. But, but learning to solve those developmental challenges, as Kate said, you know, adulthood involves a lot more of them than we are used to thinking about is really the key to sustaining resilience in old age. Well, uh, that's the it kind of reminds me of the famous study done by the, my colleagues in Japan, the uh, called the J-Ages group. They really do have some intervention study uh, the in kind of implementing the uh, sort of place of meeting, the called salon, and they, they recruited a uh, team of volunteers to run the, uh, social run the social activities like the exercise or trying to do some plays and the, uh, also sometimes dancing and I know that the program varies daily. But the uh, interesting is they created multiple sites like that within the walking distance of the 500 meter. So that the rationale behind it is the uh, uh, people who can walk uh, within like five or five, well, five minutes in the distance, then people likely to participate. So the, when they did the uh, um, sort of the, uh, in, uh, and the, some the, uh, study, the, uh, 
uh, instrument variable study on that. And then they, they really did find a difference between the uh, people who participate and not participate in the survival of the uh, becoming the uh, falling onto the disability uh, the, uh, status. But the, certainly there is a room for the intervention. So, so the, I, I think that we shouldn't overwriting that the uh, older people's resiliency that they can add it to it. Thank you. And and do you think that's related to social support or do you think that's more related to sort of um, meaning in life and staying active? Well, it's, a, it's a both. It's both. They are, because they, if you have some activities and then having some people, meeting people to talk to, that certainly energizes the, uh, the uh, uh, physical health as well as the cognitive mental health by talking, uh, stimulating brain, etc. But the, then you know you make a friend, and you know to the uh, that is the uh, something related to social support. If you need something, something you can ask for, and you can relate to. I think that have a both sort of you know social relationship is multi multi-dimensional. So by by even one action, they create the uh, lots of opening up the many doors. Yes. Thank you. I'd like to uh, to build on that a bit more because we've moved from adulthood into older age now, which is sort of the, the second part of what we're talking about in this podcast. And Sherry, you mentioned, for example, um, empty nest syndrome, where your uh, your personality or identity changes based on the role that you have both socially and in your family as you get older. And there's, there's a lot of those kind of changes as you move into older adulthood. There's, um, there's change in retirement, for example. There's more bereavement your physical health may decline, you maybe will likely to be have illness or reduced mobility. And yet what we've seen and, and what we have all agreed that we've seen in our research is that resilience improves with age in most groups, not all groups, but in many groups. How do you think um, older adults in particular um, manage that resilience in the face of the huge changes they're going through in their identity and their place in the world? So I think the first thing is that these, that many, many of these are things that you actually are expecting. So you're expecting to retire at some point. I'm looking at it now. I'm a bit, I'm a bit young, but I'm look, I'm looking at it. If you're a woman, there is a kind of expectation, a woman and you're married to a man, there is a kind of expectation that you're going to lose your husband rather than the other way around so it's kind of it's kind of an expected thing you, there's an expectation i think that your health will probably get get worse for mo most of us so some of those things we're kind of already preparing preparing for when they actually happen is a kind of is it is it is a different matter it's um and so those big challenges like you know finding that your spouse has has dementia or or, or, or being bereaved I think that there's that kind of initial, um, a sort of an additional, quite a sharp sort of adjustment that has to be made. But then, you know, people can either achieve resilience as a sort of graduate in my my data, sort of as a gradual process over time, or sometimes after a turning point. So I have uh, participants 
um, older male widowed participants for whom they have taken an action to turn their life, to turn that point around from a kind of feeling unhappy, maybe not thinking that their life is worth living to a point where they think, yes, life is worth living again. And sometimes it's somebody else who does that, who says, actually, I can help you. I can help you change house. I can um, take you along to this club that I go to. Um, so the sort of like the, the, the ways in which or the dynamics of how you achieve kind of resilience as an outcome and, and indeed lose it again um, are challenging. My uh, a colleague of mine, Warren Donnellan, has described, for example, dementia care as trying to go up a moving, a downward moving escalator. So you may achieve a point at which you are resilient and then something happens to your spouse, the spouse's behaviour perhaps becomes more erratic and then you've you've lost that position of being resilient and then then again you've got to kind of build towards it and that might be by pulling on resources such as respite or family resources or friend resources or so on so some things i think you're already expecting some challenges um and then once there are new challenges you kind of as a period of, of adjustment or sometimes some people just do it there's no kind of you know they're simply dead cool about these problems all the way along and take it completely in their stride I think that's the minority of people. Majority of people, there is a kind of, you know, fluctuation in terms of uh, of how they uh, get back to an, an equilibrium. Thank you, and I'd like to talk about that um, that fluctuation a bit more. So, one of the things that's been brought up in several of our podcasts is the idea of an allostatic load. So, the idea that that uh, small amounts of stress over time can improve your resilience as you learn to cope with them and to better use your coping resources, which might be what we're seeing in adulthood here, but that too much stress all at once is essentially too much for the system to cope with. So you end up actually losing resilience and doing worse off than you were initially. And we've mentioned how um, there are a few different ways, for example, social support um, and lived experience that adults use to improve their resilience and better cope with future problems as they come up. But there's also this idea that there's gonna be a point beyond which um, your resilience cannot cope any further. And certainly there, there have been studies on what they've called the, the oldest old, the 85, 95 age groups, where you see that resilience, although it has been increasing across adulthood, it suddenly starts to dip again. Do you think this is due to, for example, mainly physical health problems? Or could it be to do with um, an increasingly smaller social circle? Or is there something else that you think that in the oldest old could be impacting their resilience? Uh, yeah, well, first, I would just like to say that, you know, in terms of allostatic load, that again, you know, that the literature on that is really more in terms of like cumulative wear and tear on the body. And in fact, that is really the 
physiological reason why sort of the total amount of dose is so important because we don't really have separate physiological responses in terms of like cortisol reactivity and inflammation and things like that, or, you know, adrenaline in the moment, uh, you know, for bullying versus domestic violence versus sexual assault or whatever. And, and that's why they all have this sort of cumulative effect and, and that you can see you know, in people, you know, as they age, that, that 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 allostatic load, you know, does just tend to increase. And so really, you know, the goal of, of a lot, well, life well lived is to sort of minimize your exposures to things that are going to uh, disrupt your allostasis, you know, beyond, uh, uh, you know, the, the sort of range of just sort of your sort of I mean, our body predicts over time, like, well, today is going to be a big day for me. And so it'll sort of, you know, harness those types of resources. And it's those kinds of, uh, you know, shocks to the system that disrupt that and add to our, our allostatic load. And so again, that supports the sort of cumulative trauma burden, uh, you know, and I would, in terms of thinking about the old, old I think you have to think about it again in terms of resilience portfolios and the sort of whole range of, of traumas and strengths that are that are together summing up to what that person's total level of functioning is going to look like. And then it's not just one thing. And so, you know, it really need to stop talking about resilience as if it's just like a thing, but, you know, but it reflects like the sort of total uh, you know, it's basically, it's more like a scale and like the bad stuff is on one side of the scale and the good stuff is on the other side of the scale. And as long as there's more good stuff than bad stuff, then you're in good shape. And if it starts to go the other way, you know, that's when you're going to lead to, you know, not just things like PTSD, but, you know, health related quality of life and you know, as we know from all the ACEs research, there's been more than 40 different kinds of health outcomes associated with it, including all uh, 10 of the leading causes of morbidity and mortality in the United States. Uh, so I think what happens is that it's just a matter of whether your portfolio stays robust enough to deal with the amount of trauma that you've got. And so that's not just a matter of like one thing. It's not just going to be a matter of uh, like social support or physical health, but, uh, but, you know, there are certain things that, you know, that would be great for anybody. I mean, like just in terms of exercise, I think what happens with a lot of older people is that they develop this thing called frailty syndrome where they, uh, and we now know because of some, you know, exceptional people that you can actually, I mean, yeah, no 80-year-old is going to look like a 20-year-old in terms of their muscle mass or, or their uh, ability to, you know, respirate oxygen or something like that. But they can actually look pretty darn good if they put their energy into sustaining their, their physical well-being. And so those are the kinds of things that, that help, you know, that those there have these cascade effects into affecting other types of things too, because if it makes it harder for you to walk or get around, then you're less likely to go out and see your friends, or maybe you stop going to church or whatever it is that's important to you. And uh, so you have to sustain those resilience portfolios. And the, the newest research on allostatic load, I mean, there's some really exciting stuff coming out that shows that, you know, we've known for a long time now about how trauma connects to, adds to your allostatic load, 
but we're now seeing how like pro-social activities and moderate exercise and things like that can, you know, at this basic physiological level, start to heal some of that trauma-induced allostatic load. And so as we age, you know, we just, it's important not to give up and let our lives become narrower and narrower, but to recognize that for most people, uh, you know, you can preserve quite a lot of those functionings, whether you're talking about physiological or psychological or social, for, you know, many years longer than, than we used to think in our stereotypes about aging. I think one thing to add is that it's not, these things are not the responsibility of the older adult in that sense, you know, that actually it's about how, you know, having good health and welfare service use um we have a you know in the uk we have a free uh a free at the point of delivery health service we need it's not perfect by any means um we're struggling with issues around how to finance social care and for me health and social care are one thing it is they're not two separate things they are one thing and it's absurd to think of them as, as different um you know we can have financial resources to support older older people there's lots of things that we can we we can do i think it's as i've got older and i've seen my parents age in particular what one of the things that i realize is that it's quite challenging to rem to maintain a really healthy later life because things come along that are completely unexpected and knock and knock things for six and so um, I think it isn't it isn't surprising that people feel feel less resilient feel less robust for the majority of cases because there are there are things that uh, particularly around you know physical health or around um, cognitive decline for example which are really quite challenging to uh, to overcome and perhaps what we should be doing is being is recognizing those and thinking about how we're going to support those so that we can maintain uh, quality of life because it's quality of life rather than additional years that we want well, that I want. But in the context of comparing the cross-cultural, cross-national comparative study, so the like between, my, especially the case of the Japan, so the EFT, you know, we can learn from Japan or what Japan can offer to the future aging. So the, the I like to bring up the few issues we seeing in Japan, and there are many people living alone. It's not about like the uh, you you just uh, don't have any friends or something, but it's becoming a trend because they not many people are not married to start with, and it's the number of unmarried people is growing. So not only the you don't have any children to support, but it, it's the kind of the growing cases of dying alone. So the, uh, that is something might it's likely to happen in the UK because the uh, demographically and the solo living and the not unmarried people are growing in the UK too. But it's it's not comparison. Com 
not comparing the speed of the uh, happening in Japan, but it definitely happening in the, in the UK. So the if the, we are living to that sort uh, the context of democratic context of the sort of living, how we find the resiliency and how we you know find something to the to the uh, health uh, healthy aging. So that that is my future uh, topics that they want to work on. Yes. So we've mentioned uh, over the past few uh, discussions that old age is a time of large transitions. So we've mentioned, for example, uh, physical um, transitions, transitions in social health and physical functioning, in financial productivity in terms of retirement, and in physical appearance and identity. And all of these must be addressed and adapted to on top of the potential of ageism and difficulties with the physical health that older adults might face. But despite all of this, as we've said, we see that um, resilience seems to increase with age. And we mentioned also that that could be because of more lived experience. But there is a, another option that I would like us to consider here, which is one that's come up in the literature recently, which is around the idea that um, as you get older, then your um, cognitive function changes such that you focus more on positive events. So not only do you have better emotional control, but you, you, uh, physi you physically and neurologically um, identify and remember positive events more often. Now, I was wondering whether you consider this to conflict with the resilience literature. Uh, is it saying that older adults aren't necessarily more resilient, they just have different brain patterns? Or would you say this is an outcome of the development of resilience as we age? Oh. Well, I was just going to say that I think that, uh, you know, despite all of the, the, I mean, I do think that there are some things that in, you know, as we age do get more and more unpredictable as we've talked about a little bit, as, as Kate was saying earlier, you know, you, I mean, if you are in decent health when you're 22 years old, there's a really high chance that you're still going to be in decent health when you're 23 years old. And, you know, that just gets to be less and less true as we go on. I mean, that's not going to be the same for like an 82 versus an 83 year old. Uh, you know, but, but at the same time, there are a lot of other types of traumatic experiences that we are more insulated from as we change, as we age. Uh, you know, there are some kinds of traumatic experiences that are unique to childhood, like child neglect or statutory rape or lots of, you know, gang exposures for all intents and purposes or, or exposures of youth, uh, you know, and, but in even other types of things that uh, are become less likely. So for example, domestic violence exposure drops precipitously in over our 20s and 30s, and so do exposure to lots of other crimes. And so I'm I'm not sure if you can really, uh, you know, I think it's hard to separate out those sorts of cognitive filters and saying that people have a positive bias when the world around them is changing. I mean, you can see that in my, my own life. I mean, I am pretty insulated from most kinds of traumatic experiences and, you know, at, at, at my age and, you know, knock on wood and everything. And, uh, 
you know, and I think that that becomes more and more true. There's even a wide range of different types of crime that, that you're less likely to experience. And there's only really a few things in the other category. So for example, uh, financial exploitation of older adults by uh, family members is something that is much more likely among age, older populations than youngers. But that's a pretty narrow set of experiences that fit into that category. Um, and I did just also want to, uh, re, you know, underscore what both Kate and Noriko said about, you know, we've, you know, even in my comments, you know, we've just tended to, it's so easy because our field does it so much is like focus on individuals and families. But there are really big uh, social and cultural differences in how people do as they age. And, you know, there are these blue zones where people often live to be, you know, very long lived lives and extremely good health relative for their age. And, and everybody, you know, pretty much recognizes that those are due to the kinds of you know, broader social supports that, that Kate was talking about in terms of healthcare and also, you know, big cultural differences. So, you know, here in the United States, there's a fair amount of ageism, uh, youth is really valued, uh, but, you know, in, in some societies, uh, Noriko, I would be fascinated to hear what your take on current Japan society is, because in the United States, that's often held up as a culture where people really value elders and have a lot of respect. Uh, here in the United States, a lot of indigenous cultures really value older adults and, and treat them with a lot of respect. And so I think that that really changes what the picture is of aging and that we really important that we bring in those factors into our understanding of what resilience portfolios are as well. Yes, yeah, thank you. Um, thank you, Jennifer. And the, uh, for the Japan, certainly the uh, demography of the older population is growing and the gro we call the silver tsunami. So the, uh, it's, not, it's not like the, we don't respect, but sometimes the younger people who are oppressed uh, that you know, the, to support the older, growing older people with their own working, um, paying a tax to the system. So the, it's like younger people, it's the more becoming smaller and in a like a demographic pyramid so the we really certainly socially that it's a bit of becoming a crisis and that is something japan is facing so that's something that the, we need to bear in mind and uh, when we're talking about aging as the sort of global context and the also the same time that we we've been talking about the healthy aging quite many years now. So the even older people and the young adult people trying to be more healthier. So everyone's doing exercise and doing a Sudoku to the uh, stimulate the cognitive abilities. That's something, you know, the, if the, you, you keep working on such the, uh, you know, behavior intervention and what will pay off. That's something that's also scope of the research and how the, we can be, maintain the cognitive reserve in addition to the uh, everyone's trying to get university degree so something that you know we have the laws of scope of the uh, research in this area um in 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 the cognitive abilities yes so i suppose the the last uh the big question is of course um 
how can we promote resilience in light of these multiple life changes in adulthood and later life? Well, the beautiful thing about thinking about resilience as a process and understanding that it's this combination of, you know, of traumas and strengths is that it, it does really help you visualize what, you know, better prevention and intervention and policy would be, because then you see that it's all about like building up those strengths portfolios. And so, you know, there are things that can be done at the, at the policy level, as, as Kate was mentioning, in terms of, uh, you know, providing good health care and, and social care. Uh, you know, there are, you know, things that, you know, again, at the policy level, like providing paid time off to take care of older relatives or, or things like that. Uh, you know, then there's also things at the family and community level. I mean, at the community level, I think it is so important that there are are public green spaces and places for people to walk and gather that are accessible. Uh, like for example, here in my community, I live in a fairly rural area and we have a lot of trails, I mean, hundreds of miles of trails in the, in the region, but a lot of them are not very easy to access. And so it has really been a, a game changer for a lot of people in the communities when this nonprofit called uh, Mountain Goat Trail, which I don't have any affiliation with, uh, you know, came in and, and paved this flat section of trails that kind of go through the center of town. And um, this made it more accessible for older people, as well as like families with strollers and what have you. And, uh, you know, so those are the kinds of like built environment types of things that we should be thinking about too. So, uh, you know, ramps, I mean, you know, parking spaces, I mean, making sure that all of that kind of stuff is in place. And then, you know, at the, you know, individual level, uh, you know, exercise, again, like I mentioned, uh, staying involved in the community, uh, you know, finding something to connect to that's larger than yourself. So if you're retired, like, don't just sit home and like watch TV all day, but Use those extra hours and resources to get more involved with your favorite nonprofit organization or, or volunteer at a school or a church or, you know, a, a synagogue or whatever the case may be. And, you know, that those that there, it, it doesn't really, I mean, it almost doesn't sort of matter as long as there's something that's got that meaning making piece in there, because all of us have different resilience portfolios. Uh, you know, we don't all have to be good at everything. We don't all have to be like sort of the perfect model of aging or, you know, run a marathon when we're 75 or something like that. But as long as people are putting together, you know, like a, a workable combination that's going to help hold them up and support them over those years and, and be flexible about adapting them for, you know, some of the, the health challenges that are going to be out of people's control, like the onset of dementia or things like that. To uh, dear Sherry uh, and dear Karsten, um, the resilience is pretty much the individual focus. It has been the individual, like the resources that people can use to the achieve the goal despite adversity. That, that's the, that's a sort of the idea that then I started I started when I working on the resiliency. But the, uh, given that the uh, aging, problems we are facing and then I think the region is much more so, so, 
society is the responsibility than the individual sort of left with the individual capability. And for example, like the uh, internet, you know, we, we think the you be able to use the internet, it's the uh, sort of the power, key to the power, and also the uh, kind of, you know, having access to information, it's just the way to the get ahead of everyone else. But not everyone has the uh, resources to connect, like we saw this in the COVID pandemic, and the, just the uh, mom sharing their phone with the other children, like couple of children to do the homework, that is this something dear we will be seeing uh, in the future, especially the among the uh, older people not having access to, so therefore not the having information, but all the information that digitized these days and only accessible through the uh, complex web the websites and the hidden under the some link. And we everyone must find the right information kind of trolling through and something the society can be the uh, help we have to address the society can be friendly <laughs> to the other people people who have the some the difficulties accessing the uh, resources the whatever the resource problems or the uh, intellectual problems or, or whatever the reason is that is what we have to kind of achieve the uh, equity um, in a way, they, uh, so they can give some more support to the, those who have a problem accessing the right information. I, I think that's something that we have to bear it in mind. But, you know, it's not about the people, it's about society. And the, it's, it's the uh, society's problem to offer the resource, proper resources to people. Yep. Thank you. And um, bearing in mind that we have mentioned, for example, that uh, resilience is related to improved physical and mental health. Uh, in my own research, I found it's related to lower depression, lower anxiety, lower problems with activities of daily living. And that this seems to, to compensate somewhat for the physical losses that we experience as we age. Should resilience be a, a public health focus for adulthood and older, older age? Um, yes, absolutely. I agree with what Christian said about that, that it, um, although, again, you know, I think that I wouldn't define it as, as a unitary thing, but, <clears throat> excuse me, as, uh, you know, but as this, that, that a strengths-based approaches to promoting health and well-being that we need to, uh, you know, as Christian was saying, to like move off of this deficit-based lens um, and just think about taking away symptoms and stuff instead of actively promoting thriving. That's what we should be shifting to. And it kind of, uh, I saw the, the questions that you had provided and I, you know, kind of wanted to take this opportunity to build on what Sherry said and also go on record that resilience should be a public health priority. And I don't think it's been it hasn't been framed that way, at least within the public health discipline. This is something that, you know, my colleagues and I have been talking about for a few years is that we don't really teach about resilience within public health. So public health practitioners and researchers, it's something that, oh, if you have an interest in it, you kind of, you know, you take classes in psychology or in social work to learn about it, but it hasn't really been a focus. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of the work that public health does is almost in 
counterintuitive to what it's supposed to do and is that it's a lot of it is reactionary to um, things going on and coming from a deficits-based approach. So when we kind of flip that around and we kind of start to focus on what are people doing well, what are older adults successful at, how can we keep helping them do that? How can we capitalize on that through the, the various interventions and policies, a lot of which Sherry just outlined? When we take it from that perspective, I think we'll, there's a, a much greater potential to impact those at a, a much more widespread level because right now it really is not a focus within within the discipline and in, in the way that it should be. I'd like to throw a curveball into the discussion just before we finish here and that is that some people have suggested that the reason that we see these benefits of resilience and in fact the reason we see resilience increasing in adult is essentially a survivor bias that it's the people with positive physical and mental health and resilience resources that make it to older age. Do you think this might explain the uh, the age differences that we see, or is it definitely something that we we learn as we get older? Uh, sure, I think that that probably is uh, one of the factors, uh, especially in the United States, is this phenomenon that some people call uh, deaths of despair has increased, and you know, and so there are a lot of premature deaths that are due to suicide or drug overdoses or um, you know cirrhosis of the liver or other things that are uh, you know because of substance abuse and uh, you know there's no question that some of the people who are uh, the most overwhelmed and carry the highest trauma burdens are just simply not living as long as as other people are uh, so absolutely that's a huge factor to think of in any age-based analysis of, uh, of the, the process of resilience? You know, I think that's an interesting question within the context of HIV, actually, because there's a lot of, there historically has been a lot of conversations on survivorship guilt, in a way, of folks who have reached this, again, this older age, feeling guilty because a lot of their, you know, folks in their community, their lovers, their partners, their friends um, did not get to that point. So in, in that regard, it's almost slightly flipped. Um, but I do think that, you know, on the other hand, there are people then that have this, um, and many of the, the qualitative, um, a lot of the qualitative I've wor work that I've done supports this, that there are then some people who feel like they owe it to those people um, who did not get to this, who were not able to see older age to make the best of it, even if it's not perfect, um, to keep to keep fighting, to keep pushing for better legislation and better um, support systems, whether that's um, financially or, you know, pushing pharmaceutical companies to make patents available in parts of the world where they're not. Um, and so I think it's it's a twofold thing within this community specifically, um, where you, where you see both sides of it. And I think one day you could feel one way, and, and the next you could feel another. And kind of coming back to this central point of, you know, in some in some ways taking it day by day. I think in any of in all of this work, you know, what we would think resilience looks like one day might be completely different 
for someone the next. And I think it's the same within, within that as well. And taking it from a, you know, a biopsychosocial perspective of health and well and well-being is definitely um, a key way to to think about that moving forward. The Resilience Research Group is a global group of researchers, practitioners, charities, and organizations dedicated to developing high-quality collaborative resilience research. Our aims are to improve access to understanding of and quality of resilience research and to support and aid our members in effectively developing and disseminating their research. To find out more or to get involved, contact us on Twitter or LinkedIn.